Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Stuart in L.A., welcoming you to another edition of Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about everything in print. And welcoming you to Jurassic Park, the most popular and admired theme park never to have opened its doors. For decades, folks have flocked to Steven Spielberg's Oscar-winning blockbuster about a failed attempt to clone and exhibit dinosaurs on a Costa Rican island. And this week, Go Level donors to Sister Podcast Now Playing can hear Jacob, Arnie, and myself discuss that big movie. But... I think before you contemplate the state of computer graphics in 93 or what Sam Jackson was like as an actor at the start of his career, I encourage Jurassic Park enthusiasts to begin their visit here with the source material. Today's podcast is focused on the Jurassic World created on the page by Michael Crichton. King of the techno-thriller, ruler of the airport novel, Michael Crichton. When Jurassic Park is first published in November 1990, Crichton is a 48-year-old Harvard Med School graduate with half a dozen bestsellers on his resume. Like Daniel Steele or John Grisham or Stephen King, his name really is a brand. You know, you see Michael Crichton on a book cover, it creates a certain expectation. We know the author is going to take a hot-button issue. You know, it's ripped from today's headlines or usually scientific journals because he's really deep into research. You know, he, he will spend all of his time researching that subject until he has an informed and typically a cynical conclusion about it. And then he's going to splice his TED Talk into a pulp adventure with plenty of chases and explosions and action. There's a reason why Hollywood has adapted so many of his books, and I don't think it's because they're guaranteed to make a bunch of money. Many of them have failed. I think it's because he has this talent for explaining abstract scientific concepts in a cinematic way. Yes, his characters are usually scientists or nerds or just stubborn eggheads. They usually have little internal dimension, but they're always thrust into these crises that require a lot of running and jumping. You're rapidly turning the page to see what happens to them next. His prose is simple, very straightforward. You're more likely to get a graph or a map or a mathematical equation within the text than you will a flowery description or highfalutin metaphor. He's just not that kind of writer. He will use jargon and lingo that he's picked up from his research, but he'll translate that for you too. I mean, he gives you the glossary. You don't need a degree in chemistry or engineering to follow a Michael Crichton story. That was true of his breakout novel, The Andromeda Strain. He wrote that back in 1969. It was about a virus from space that could wipe out the world. But really, it just kind of educated the public on outbreaks. And I think that's also true here with Jurassic Park, that the dinosaurs are bait. They're here to lure readers into what's actually a lecture about the perils of genetic engineering. And that's a mission that makes this book feel very different from Spielberg's adaptation. Even though they're largely going to hit the same plot points, they have a different emphasis. Ask anyone to describe that movie, no doubt one of the first words they're going to use is dinosaur. Because Spielberg shares that awe with those prehistoric creatures. He, like the viewer, desires to see them return to life. 
Michael Crichton does not desire to see dinosaurs come to life. I'm not sure that he likes dinosaurs. At no point in the 448 pages of his novel do you see a character espousing the positives of bringing back a T-Rex or Triceratops from extinction. No one is frozen in wide-eyed admiration at the sight of a brachiosaur. You know, the first dinosaur we see in print, it's going to bite the arm of an eight-year-old girl. And the next one we get eats a baby in a crib, okay? Michael Crichton never wants us to think of these beasts as anything more than a lab experiment gone wrong, born of hubris and greed. You get that early and often in Jurassic Park. So let me read you the opening paragraph of the introduction. The late 20th century has witnessed a scientific gold rush of astonishing proportions, the headlong and furious haste to commercialize genetic engineering. This enterprise has proceeded so rapidly, with so little outside commentary, that its dimensions and implications are hardly understood at all. Crichton goes on to build biotechnology as a bigger frontier than the nuclear race, than the computer industry, and what frightens him about it is that there are no ethical watchdogs or safeguards to protect the public from Dr. Frankenstein. That is a huge shift in 20th century research. You know, at the start of the 20th century, most research is funded by universities. You know, they take a broad-based approach. They don't invest in frivolous experiments that have possible marketing outcomes. They sought answers for what people needed to know, not anticipated what they might like to buy. That's what's different about today. Now, genetic experimentation, it's done in secret. It's done in haste. And it's focusing on areas with the most profit potential. As one character puts it, quote, the commercialization of molecular biology is the most stunning ethical event in the history of science. This is a story about ethics in science that uses dinosaurs to illustrate a point. And that's also how we get our real villain of Jurassic Park, International Genetic Technologies, or InGen. InGen is a fictitious company. It's not real, but the way that Crichton is presenting it here at the start, it feels like we're learning it with the history of biotechnology that in 1983, Japanese investors started this company. And if you want to know more about what Crichton thinks about Japanese business practices, well, I'll point you to his next book after Jurassic Park, Rising Sun. It was accused of racism, but in short, he really cited the Japanese for having uh, quite literally cutthroat practices he did not approve of. And so, of course, it's the Japanese that are going to fund this research company. They're spending all their yen on 70-year-old John Hammond and his grad student, Henry Wu, buying them basically the world supply of amber so they can go through with it. Because, well, anyone that knows the movie knows this part. Amber existed in pools of sticky ooze back in prehistoric times, and it oftentimes collected hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes. If any of those insects bit a dinosaur, then dinosaur blood is in their stomach, and it can be used by Wu and Hammond to extract dino DNA. Obviously, if this were true, that technology would have enormous implications. And so many folks around the world would want to weigh in on the ethics of what Engine is doing and apply it to probably more important things than making dinosaurs. 
which is exactly why Ingen has paid off the Costa Rican government and bought this island on nearby Costa Rican shoreline to do all of their work in secret. They know they shouldn't be doing this, but they see the money in it. It is a gold rush, as Crichton put it. To his point, you know, we have this bizarre application of very important genetics work that got funded in 83, began in 84. Three years later, they're constructing the zoo. I mean, they are ready to get their money back for their investors. They want a quick return on this. And that brings us to August 1989. They're still about a year away from selling tickets. Hammond Zoo, it's of course going to be called Jurassic Park, is uh, potentially going to come under fire from the EPA. Not because the EPA knows that they've recreated 238 dinosaurs. It's because this exotic species of three-toed lizard is popping up in the resorts along the Costa Rican coast and taking bites out of tourists. And so Hammond has to prove that his dinosaurs have nothing to do with that. And this is obviously a big difference between the movie and the book. In the novel, the dinosaurs have already escaped Jurassic Park. To Crichton, it's a foregone conclusion. Anyone that dabbles in frivolous application of important research, who thinks that entertaining the public is more important than protecting them, they're not going to keep a lid on Pandora's box. Somehow, Frankenstein's monster is going to escape the lab and terrorize the public. And so already, that is happening. That is what gets the plot in motion. Hammond has got to prove to his Japanese shareholders that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, isn't going to trace these tourist attacks back to his zoo, so he's cobbling together a defense. He is throwing a party, an opening, as it were, a soft opening, for a few important researchers. He is basically inviting the heroes of Jurassic Park, 40-year-old paleontologist Alan Grant and his 24-year-old grad student Ellie Sattler, down for a weekend of seeing dinosaurs in cages with the expectation that once they see what has been done, they're going to give an endorsement. They're actually going to be a part of his campaign. He used to say, our park is safe. Our park provides a resource. Let us continue. In actuality, many people are going to die this weekend and Engine will be bankrupt in two months. That's how fast it's going to take for all of this to unravel. Now, here's the thing about reviewing a book that's the source material for a much more popular movie. I, I think that most people that read Jurassic Park today are going to know it's about cloning dinosaurs. They're probably already going to have seen the film and have expectations. And so it's important to stress, I think, that Crichton is in no hurry to get you in front of the cages. It takes about a 100 pages for us to see a dinosaur. And then it's going to take another 100 pages for the T-Rex to get out. So if you come for the carnage, you may be disappointed that Crichton is preoccupied with his doomsday thesis. I actually think this is the stronger half of the book. I mean, it's the one that you really see Crichton's passion. It strips the sentimentality away from Spielberg's presentation of the park. In the movie, you only get one naysayer, and it's Ian Malcolm, this rock star mathematician played to the hilt, I gotta say, by Jeff Goldblum. 
And I admit, you know, when I try to read a book for Books and Nachos, I try to forget about the movie. I wasn't going to think about Laura Dern. Alan Grant is described as bearded and barrel-chested. So, you know, I could visualize a man that was nothing like Sam Neill. But I could not imagine anyone but Goldblum as Malcolm. He just owned that character too much in the movie. I think even when I read this book long ago before I saw the movie, I knew that Jeff Goldblum was going to play him. I can't ever remember a time where I did not imagine Jeff Goldblum as this character. He is a favorite. I think he's a favorite in the movie. I think he's Crichton's favorite. I think he is the watchdog that Crichton is asking for in this new age of commercialized research because he has this chaos theory which is, I suppose, the scientific version of the colloquialism, shit happens. You know, he's out to prove that basically everything fails. Everything collapses into chaos. So I don't know why Hammond is inviting him down here. You know, basically, like the paleontologist, he's going to go on tour and basically point out the myriad of ways that Hammond has overlooked things and endangered the public. But I suppose if he can get that endorsement, it really will mean something. I would go to any park. I would, no matter how dangerous it looked, I probably would, you know, walk across a bed of nails if Malcolm said it would be okay and no one would get hurt. I mean, he carries that much clout. In the movie, he's a charming, funny character. You know, he's got a little sleazy even. Here, he changes the tone. I actually feel like he sets the tone of hysteria for this novel. Crichton even constructs the novel in seven segments to follow Malcolm's theory of seven iterations. Basically, that means that we're told collapse into chaos is identifiable in seven stages. And so the book follows those seven stages. We open the cover and it's first iteration. We know by the time we get to page 199, fourth iteration, it's graced by a Malcolm quote that says, inevitably, underlining instabilities begin to appear. And that tells us that Crichton is at last ready to set the monsters free. So, like I said, 200 pages before he's really going to let the dinosaurs loose. Now, I already mentioned they're loose at the beginning of this novel, but those are compies. Those are basically geckos with a wicked bite. They got onto some supply boats that go back and forth between Costa Rica and Isla Nublar, and they've made a nest in the Costa Rican rainforest. I think we can live with them. Honestly, it, it's a problem. You know, it, it's introducing a new predator into an ecosystem. It, it will cause some damage, no doubt about it. Small though they might be, compies are something we don't want to live with, but we can. What we cannot live with is a T-Rex or a pterodactyl or these venom-spitting Dilophosaurs, you know, there's 15 different species of dinosaur and all of them could really wipe out human life on the planet. Dinosaurs and humans never coexisted other than in the movies before, but you get the sense that if compies were first iteration, what's coming now, yes, it can't get off the island because if they breed, if they populate, it's the end of us. And of course, Hammond thought of all of this. He he thought he did. You know, they made all of the dinosaurs female. He thought he had controlled their reproduction so that this would never be a potential. 
Ian Malcolm's chaos theory constantly shoots down that hubris and points out how his thinking was flawed. But the next 200 pages are really the action portion. And a lot of characters die. I, I gotta say, it is tougher than the Spielberg movie. Alan Grant is in constant danger. And the fact that he's shepherding around Hammond's grandkids through the zoo, there's you know, been a power outage and they have to make their way back to the visitor center. I don't get the sense that this unlike the movie, is a a sentimental turn of character for him. You know, in the movie, it kind of plays like he and Ellie haven't had kids yet, and maybe they will now that they've had this surrogate family thrust on them during crisis. Uh Uh-uh. This Alan Grant, he's not even romantically involved in Ellie. He's not really that charmed by these kids. It's all business with Crichton. There's no room for lighter character moments. And, you know, maybe Spielberg has a point here, because I do think Jurassic Park, the novel, suffers from chaos theory overkill. We're given too many reasons for why the dinosaurs are going to escape and kill us all. You know, there's a tropical storm hitting at the same time that a rival tech company has inserted this mole that is shutting down the power to the electrified cages and the velociraptors are so smart they probably would have figured out a way anyway because the compies already have and i mean it goes on and on the the flaws are endless you can't believe that hammond ever thought he had the problem contained i believe Crichton that all these things could happen but it is hard to swallow that they all happen at once on this one weekend when Hammond's trying to prove that it's 100% safe. Crichton should have picked one failure rather than run down his laundry list. I also wish the author had a better flair for character. You know, he's good with hard science, psychology, not really his strong suit. You know, if someone is introduced as greedy at the start of this, rest assured, they're never going to show another dimension. They're never going to see another side to them. In most cases, they're just going to pay for their greed with their lives. I also think that Crichton was writing about science back in a day when women were not given the same level of respect as men, and there is sort of sexist notions going throughout this novel as well. Alan Grant gets all these great speeches about dinosaurs, and Ellie gets to run around and cut off jeans in a midriff-exposing shirt. And it's also true of the Hammond grandchildren. You know, you got Tim, who is the older child in the book. He is well-versed on dinos in the park. Nine-year-old kid sister Lex. She's always whining. She's bored. Believe it or not, at the start of this, when she's seeing dinosaurs, she's like, yawn, I'd rather be playing baseball. And then, of course, when she's in danger, it's just screaming. At no point is she an asset to the fugitive's escape from danger. So... Basically, the moral may be that, yes, we're all failed unless we have bioengineering that's monitored by ethical people, but the subsect of that is that men are smart and and women are dumb. And I, I think that there is room there for Crichton to grow and recognize the accomplishments women have made in science. He's a little too cynical about the gender differences. That said, I still think there's a reason to go back and read Jurassic Park. Even if you know the movie well, shot for shot, you grew up with it, I think you're going to rediscover it here on the page. Crichton's vision is meaner, it's smarter, in many ways it's more suspenseful. You, You feel like worse things could happen here. 
And to preserve some of that surprise, I'm not going to tell you any more about the remaining 200 pages. I'm going to kind of stop there. There's more characters. There's more going on. I'm going to leave that unspoiled. I think it's best to have readers find out for themselves what Crichton has in store. But be that as it may, I will say that while it's largely identical to the movie, there are a few twists you won't be anticipating. Spielberg may scare you with his conception of dinosaurs, but no one walks away from the movie theater afraid a velociraptor is going to jump out of the bathroom and, and eat them. What's great about Crichton's tome is that he makes the fear contemporary. That the unholy union of science and commerce could make us all extinct like dinosaurs if there aren't more Ian Malcolms to speak out about unchecked dangers. So this is a rare example, I think, of where movie and book complement each other. One's not better than the other. Go to the film if you want feel-good thrills. If you love dinosaurs, that's where you're going to get that passion met. Go to the book for some uneasy analysis about science. And I think you're really going to think on issues and and it's going to scare you in a different way. And if you want to know more of my thoughts on the movie experience, I do hope you can join us over at Now Playing. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top of the page, and you can become a gold-level donor. You'll receive podcasts about Jurassic Park the movie, its movie sequel Lost World, Jurassic Park 3, plus the new Jurassic World, as well as Michael Crichton's directorial debut, Westworld. He also wrote about amusement parks in a screenplay form, Westworld, its sequel, Future World, all part of our Gold Level donation. So hopefully you can join us for the conversation there. I'm going to continue to talk about books next week. Michael Crichton did write a sequel to Jurassic Park, his version of Lost World. Pretty different from the movie version. I will be reading that this week. I will be joining you next week to discuss it all. Keep reading. Until then, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.